Now, we continue our series in the book of Galatians, coming now to chapter 3, verses 26 to 29. Uh, I try not to tax us. I know that we're tired at the end of the Lord's Day. But I think what we'll do is uh, pick up the reading at verse 23 so that we remember some of the context of last week. Let's briefly pray. Our Father, may the Holy Spirit who has inspired this book and given to us this inerrant rule of faith and life help us now to understand what it means that we are adopted into the family of God through faith in Christ. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that anyone who may be here who is outside of that family may be drawn in by the Holy Spirit as your people are deepened in our own understanding and appreciation of what this adoption means by grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Galatians chapter 3. We'll begin reading with verse 23. This is the word of the Lord. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come... We are no longer under a guardian, and this is where we pick it up tonight, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's Then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now that Christ has come, has died for our sins, has been raised by the power of God from the dead, has ascended into heaven, has interceded for us and sent his spirit, of course, to draw us to himself, we no longer live an immature life of slavery but as God's children, with all of the rights and privileges of the sons of God. And the progress of the Christian life really is deepening our understanding of that. Uh, Growth in grace is deepening in our understanding of what Christ has done for us, what our justification is all about, what our adoption into the family of God is all about. Growing in grace is coming to understand uh, more deeply the privileges that we have in Christ and learning how to live according to those wonderful privileges that he has given us at the expense of his own shed blood. And we may struggle from time to time in understanding these things and experientially understanding what it means that we are children of the living God. We may grope for a better awareness. A former slave, after all, might be tempted to grovel at the feet of an old master. He might sometimes forget that he's been freed and might really want to return to those old ways of living. But we have the Holy Spirit, and that Spirit is called the Spirit of Adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, as we shall see in a subsequent sermon. But tonight we want to get a grasp on these verses that are here that address this issue of adoption. Again, it continues to be adopted uh, to be addressed in the, uh, pre- in the following chapter as well. And the first thing that we see is that all believers in Christ are sons of God. All believers in Christ are sons of God. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. 
Now, let me remind you, because I think this is very, very important, that adoption into the family of God was a fresh and new insight in the New Testament era. We hear so often that we're children of God, adopted into the family of God, that sometimes it becomes, and should never, but it becomes almost commonplace for us. But this was a fresh insight that had burst upon the scene when the Lord Jesus Christ came and was deepened by Paul the Apostle. If you look through the Old Testament, you will find 14 occasions in which God addresses his people as, uh, as, as a father. And the, the, perhaps the most profound of those is in the 103rd Psalm, as a father pities his children, so the Lord uh, pities those who fear him. Uh, all of those references are deep and wonderful, and yet they foreshadow this great thing that has been done for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. None of these Old Testament passages, of course, could enter into the depth of what it means that we are adopted into the family of God until Christ had come and he had sent the Holy Spirit. But as we move along in redemptive history and we come to the Lord Jesus, we know that the Lord Jesus addressed God as his Father because of that unique and special relationship between them, that Trinitarian, that Trinitarian relationship. There is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons in one Godhead. And yet the remarkable thing is that even though Jesus calls God his Father because of that unique Trinitarian relationship, when he teaches us to pray, what does he teach us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven. Pater, hemon, ha entois, uranois, the Greek says. Now behind that pater would have been the Aramaic Abba. Uh, when Jesus taught his disciples, he didn't teach them in Greek. He would have taught them in Aramaic. And the word would have been Abba, that word that will be used later in chapter 4 and is used also in Romans 8 that speaks of that depth of relationship that we have uh, in which we speak to God on intimate terms. Now, that would have been absolutely shocking to the disciples. It would have been dumbfounded. They would have been dumbfounded. We actually are enabled now to call God our Father. Uh, in all of the extant prayer literature of Jesus' day, the Jews never addressed God in intimate terms like that. Never. They recognized that he was a king. They recognized his majesty, and so should we but they never spoke in intimate terms to God. Now we come to the Apostle Paul, and our understanding of this even deepens uh, a great deal more. The Apostle Paul undoubtedly has Roman practice, the Roman practice of adoption in the backdrop as he thinks through this, 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 uh, this great theme. and He wants to illustrate, if you will, what God has done by using some of that Roman backdrop. In the Roman adoptive system, someone was taken from a previous state and placed into a new one. Uh, they, were, um, they were brought into a family in which their old debts were canceled. Uh, the promise was given to the adopted child that the one who adopted the new father would support and maintain them. And it was for the glory of the adopter that adoption took place before it was for the good of the one who was adopted. Now, all of those things we see in the gospel, do we not? We have been taken from our previous state and placed into a new one. We have been removed from the kingdom of Satan and placed into the kingdom of God's own dear Son, from darkness into light. Our old debts have been canceled by the cross of Jesus Christ. He has promised to support and maintain you, His child. And most gloriously, as is emphasized in Ephesians 1.6, it is for the glory of the adopter that we have been brought into the family of God. 
And so it's a fresh and new insight that all believers in Christ are sons of God. But as we think about this, it's true of all believers, all believers, and I want you to understand this whether you are a man or a woman, we are all sons of God. That might come as a very fresh insight to you. You see, we take verse 28, for example, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And I'll say more about this later. But the point here is that no matter what your your status in society, no matter what your sex may be, and I prefer that language to gender, by the way, passing remark, that you are a son of God in union with the Son of God. Male and female distinctions do not matter as far as spiritual privileges are concerned. That's the point. We are all sons in the Son. His sonship in which he has inherited from the Father by virtue of his death and burial and resurrection. His inheritance now is your inheritance. The inheritance of the Son becomes your inheritance as sons of God. And notice also that you are sons of God through faith in Christ. Again, that's what we're told in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And so it's important for us to understand that faith is not a supplement to grace. Uh, The tendency is for people in certain churches, they're taught this way, to think of God's grace bringing someone just so far, and then we finish it off with faith. But that's not the case. Faith is a grace. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Faith is God's gift. It is grace. Faith is a grace. Faith, of course, is not simply intellectual assent. It's trust and it's reliance. It's fiducial, if you will. It means taking God at His word, believing His promise. Do you believe Him now, child of God, when He says you are His child? Do you believe Him when He says to you, you have an inheritance that none can take from you? And so He says that through faith, you are sons of God. Now, have you ever noticed that when Paul the Apostle speaks of justification through faith, or in this case, adoption through faith, it is always through faith, it is never on account of faith. Not one time does Paul say you're justified on account of your faith. Not one time does he say you are adopted on account of your faith. Faith is simply a means of reception. It adds nothing. It contributes nothing. It is an empty hand that simply receives. And so the first thing then we note is that all believers in Christ are sons of God. Second thing is this. Adoption determines our identity. If Christ has done this great thing of adopting us into the family of God so that God is now our Father and we have this intimate, intimate relationship with Him, then this determines our identity. And verse 27 emphasizes this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptized into Christ, clothing yourselves with Christ is a way in which Paul also speaks of it. Now when I was a boy, I used to be uh, the, the best superhero on the block. I mean, I would go into my mom's uh, towel closet and I'd get a towel and she'd get a a safety pin, and we'd connect it, you know. 
I'd jump off the back porch, which was way high, and fly through the air with the greatest of ease. And it was a wonderful thing to become Superman or Tarzan or... Have you ever played dress-up? Ever done that? Well, what Paul the Apostle is saying to us is that something really deeper than dress-up takes place when you know Christ. You actually take on a new identity, not just imagining a new identity, such as a child when he plays dress-up imagines a new identity. You actually take on a new identity. You really are clothed with Christ. You are now in union with Christ. You're baptized into Christ, which gives to you as a child of God a completely new identity. You are not who you were. You are not what you were. You don't belong to the kingdom to which you once belonged. You have now new privileges. You have a new father. You really are really are a child of God, adopted into the family of God. It's a wondrous thing for you to consider this deep, deep reality. And so he says, baptism visibly represents our unity with Christ. Now, baptism is common to all Christians. And in baptism, we have put on Christ as one would put on an identifying garment, such as a uniform. This is the sign of our identity. When baptism is administered in this church, it is a sign of a new identity. Now, if the Judaizers in the Galatian churches had understood this, there never would have been Judaizers. Here are these, here are these people who are teaching that, yeah, salvation by grace is fine as far as it goes, but we need to add to it other identity markers. No, says Paul, no, 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 no. Uh, the identity marker has already been received. You don't need to add to that circumcision. You don't need to, to add to that uh, special days to make you a special people. What you need to understand is in Christ Jesus, you are adopted into his family. In baptism, you already have that mark of belonging to him. This is the sign of your new identity. Now, I hope that you already can see their sweeping implications. We could spend a long time with implications, but as far as your spiritual privileges are concerned, the first implication of this is that religious distinction between Jew and Gentile have no place in the church of Jesus Christ. The Judaizers were insisting that Gentiles become Jews in order to be true Christians. But the Apostle Paul everywhere, everywhere opposes that viewpoint. Take, for example, in Ephesians, the second chapter. Turn there for a moment. In Ephesians chapter 2, uh, beginning there with, uh, oh, let's say verse 11. He says this, Therefore remember, this is Ephesians 2.11, Remember that at one time you Gentiles, so he's speaking to Gentiles, Gentile Christians, at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. All right, You were outside of the covenant community. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. What is Paul saying in that passage? You Gentiles were once outside the covenant community, but now through the blood of Christ He has made peace, peace not only with God, but peace between believing Jew and Gentile, so that now the two have become one new humanity in Christ. That's a privilege that we have of belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, at any time that we want to make a distinction between ourselves and other Christians, based upon uh, all these sorts of superficial differences that existed between Jew and Gentile, for example, this is a denial of the gospel. We must not fall into that trap. Or take another implication. Slave and free has no meaning as far as these privileges are concerned. Union with Christ. Union with Christ makes it impossible for one to have higher rank than another, again, in terms of spiritual privileges. Or, again, distinction of sex, male and female, as far as spiritual privileges are concerned, that distinction is done away by adoption in Christ Jesus. Now, you know, I'm reflecting on verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, lest you misunderstand, the Apostle Paul is not teaching uh, adrogony. He is not teaching egalitarianism. He is not saying that all distinctions between uh, Jew or Greek or cultural differences or slave or free or employer or employee or male or female are done away with. He's saying that in Christ we have the same spiritual privileges, and those privileges belong to all equally who are in union with Jesus Christ. Now, because I want you to understand this, I hope that you won't mind that I read something that I've written on the subject. It's a very non-technical statement, but I think it might uh, give us some clarity. The reason I want to do this is because this verse has been used in certain churches to try and prove the ordination of women to office, for example. Is that what Paul is doing? Listen to this. The interpretation of Paul's words as androgynous misses the point, as does the application of the text to the question of female office bearers in the church. Paul is not teaching the removal of all distinctions within the church. Paul does not say that male and female are identical, but that they are one. His purpose is to state that spiritual privileges belong equally to all within the church without exception. The sort of elitism represented by the Judaizing party or other kinds of spiritual elitism might be based upon additional distinctions have no place in the church. Moreover, it is inappropriate to apply this verse to the question of female office bearers. This is certainly not Paul's purpose in the passage. Elsewhere, Paul insists upon male leadership grounded in creation, 1 Timothy chapter 2, 11 through 15. In addition, a consistent application of this sort of argument might do away with all office in the church. We must strictly adhere to Paul's purpose in the passage, 
which is to insist that spiritual privileges belong to all who have union with Christ. Ordination is not a common privilege, but is a calling to a particular office within the church. Therefore, applying this text to the question of female office bearers in the church is misplaced. Let me go on. Spiritual privileges, then, belong to all equally in the church of Christ, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Formerly, distinctions of religious heritage, class, and sex have divided and have been used as excuses to exclude others from spiritual privileges. But now, in Christ, such distinctions are abolished. Those who have formally opposed one another and gloried in distinctions are one in Christ Jesus, or as Paul says in Ephesians, are one new man in Christ. Paul has shown a powerful application of this reality in church life in Galatians 2, 11 and following, in which he rebuked Peter for his failure to recognize that table fellowship must be extended without exception to all who are justified by faith in Christ. Paul could not stand by while the gospel was compromised by Peter, nor does he stand by idly while the gospel is compromised by the Judaizers. Moreover, Paul's instruction on the reality of union with Christ and of his people forearms us to be guardians of this principle within the church today. The basis upon which God receives us in Christ is the same basis upon which we are called to receive one another. Denying this is a denial of the gospel. And so adoption determines our identity with sweeping implications for us. I want to make a third point. Adopted children receive inherited promises, verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Child of God, we are heirs. This refers back to that argument that we saw last week. Believers are the seed of Abraham in Christ who is the ultimate receiver of the inherited promise. This is not determined by physical descent, nor by works, but it is determined by faith. We are heirs according to the promise. Language such as heirs, promise, these are words of grace that point away from merit attempting to gain favor by works we do and point us only to the God who gives adoption with its privileges by sheer grace. Now let me make a fourth point, a fourth and final point with some sub-points. I think having said these few things about adoption on this Sunday evening, we need to think about some privileges and duties by virtue of adoption. And I want to remind you that the Westminster Confession of Faith, to which all of your office bearers here subscribe, is the best place to which to turn. As a matter of fact, in all of the confessions of the church that have been written, the Westminster Confession is the only one that has a chapter on adoption. The only one, which I think says something about the Westminster divines. It's chapter 12. All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have put his name upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as a father, 
yet never cast off, but sealed on to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. What are some of the privileges then enumerated in our confession on the basis of the Word of God? If you are a child of God, you have a new father. You are released from your old father, the devil, and you have a new father, God himself. If you are a child of God, God's name is upon you. He has placed his very name on you as his child. If you are a child of God, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of adoption, by which you cry, Abba, Father, but that comes next time, next week in the next passage. If you are a child of God, he watches over you, and he protects you, and he keeps you, so that you may know that in his providential care of you, you are going through nothing but what he has ordained for his glory and your own good. If you are a child of God, he, how shall we put it? He educates you. He educates you. It is true that in Christ Jesus there is now no condemnation, but there is paternal discipline. He loves you as a father, and so he will educate you as his child. There will be the rod. And so when we teach the final perseverance of the saints, when we teach the security of the believer, we're not teaching licentiousness. This is not antinomianism because there's the rod. And the Lord who loves his people exercises the rod. He will not allow us to stay in our sin. He will not allow us to continue to deviate from the path. If you're a true, true child of God whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And he will use that rod of correction because he loves you as his child. Thank God for that. And if you are a child of God, just to mention one other, privilege. He gives to you security, security, security. You remember in chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians that when he speaks of adoption, he puts it in the context of God's predestination. He says in Ephesians 1, beginning with verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, now this is verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And if it is true, as it is, that your adoption is traceable to God's predestinarian grace and care of you, then nothing can unchild you when you have become, by grace, a child of God. Nothing can remove you from His sovereign, free, gracious, fatherly, loving care. Nothing. And I believe that those folk who teach that a Christian may be a child of God one day and a child of the devil another, I believe that they're teaching salvation by works. I believe that it needs to be as firmly opposed as when Luther opposed the Church of Rome. Those are the privileges that belong to you, just to mention them on this Sunday evening, child of God. But there also are duties, and I mentioned two very quickly. The first is, If God loves me as a father, then I should love him in return as a son. It's just axiomatic, isn't it? 
If a father loves his child, the child ought to love his father. And you know what else? If I'm a part of a family, I should love my family. I should love my brothers and I should love my sisters. When God saved you, he did not save you to stand alone. He saves his people and he makes us to be a part of a family. We are adopted children of God. Not only then do we love God as our father, but we love our brothers and we love our sisters in Christ who are all sons of God by faith in him. Now the hymn that we're going to sing in conclusion is Blessed Are the Sons of God. And you will find three verses in your hymnal. But did you know there were six? And so as we conclude, listen to these verses. Three of them are missing in your hymnal. We really need to knock these things back into the hymnal because they've been knocked out and it's most unfortunate. Blessed are the sons of God They are bought with Jesus' blood. They are ransomed from the grave. Life eternal they shall have. With them numbered may we be now and through eternity. God did love them in his Son long before the world began. They the seal of this receive when on Jesus they believe. They are justified by grace. They enjoy a solid peace. All their sins are washed away. They shall stand in God's great day. They produce the fruits of grace in the works of righteousness. Born of God, they hate all sin. God's pure word remains within. They have fellowship with God through the mediator's blood. One with God through Jesus, one glory is in them begun. Though they suffer much on earth, strangers to the worldling's mirth, yet they have an inward joy, pleasures which can never cloy. With them numbered may we be, now and through eternity. Amen.